back to our two-part well-being special. This is Not Safe for Publication, a podcast which usually deals with the lighter side of humanities research. Well, but today we're dealing with some really heavy stuff, so <laughs> grab your box of tissues or just turn it off if you're not willing to listen. Yeah, today we're getting heavy and we're talking about the, uh, the various challenges that we face as PhD researchers. So last episode we talked about imposter syndrome and the dangers of taking on too much. And this episode, we are going to be talking about... Well, uh, Jolie, why don't you take us away? I'm going to talk a bit about what to do when you hit the crisis, when everything hits the fan and it's a nightmare and you just can't carry on, you can't get out of bed. The idea of well-being is that you never get to that point, is that you you do all the meditation, the exercise and all the additional things that you're supposed to do to keep you healthy. You take the breaks and everything else, but sometimes even when you try and do all of that stuff, it can end up going wrong. Um, for some people, it can be chronic illness and they have a flare-up or they have a disability that causes them problems. And for some people, you're perfectly healthy and you're getting on with your life and then one day you wake up and you just can't. And the most important thing, this is going to be mom advice, is that you go and see somebody. And one of the biggest problems that I think we face, particularly in the UK, is if you have a mental health issue, and this is all about mental health, so that's the problem. You can't get to see a GP easily. Your GP might not be understanding. I think we've made a lot of progress with things like uh, time to talk, time to change, but it's still really hard to step up and say, I can't do this right now. Very often you feel like you don't understand why you can't do it. It's like, last week I really loved this. Last week I really enjoyed it. Um, Unfortunately, my brain is trying to kill me and I don't know what to do. That's really hard because very often the medical profession don't treat mental health as a serious problem. It's very frightening having to go to your professors when we live in a, we're working in an environment that's very competitive, where you have to show up, you're supposed to be, you know, fantastic, you're supposed to be able to handle all the stress. And then when you can't, it feels like you failed in some very, very critical way. So you've got to get past all of those hideous feelings and actually reach out for support. And how the hell do you do that? And it's actually really really hard and I can speak from personal experience it actually took a month to see my GP I was very lucky I my GP has an interest in mental health mom advice again when you're looking for a GP when you first arrive or if you are looking for a GP either call the surgery or if phone calls kill you and I know that can be absolute hell I hate making phone calls then you can actually Google GPs in your local area and a lot of the NHS databases will say what they are particularly interested in and you can find out whether they actually have an interest in mental health. So you can reach out that way. And then you have to be honest, uh, mom advice, write it all down in a notebook before you go. (laughs) Go with somebody else who can hold your hand um, if you burst into tears. I'm, you know, I'm being very lighthearted about it, but it is the scariest thing in the world to, one, have to see your supervisor or your academic advisor and say you have a problem and see a GP about it um, because you never know how they're going to react. But it is 
the critical thing to do and you have to do it before literally everything is on fire and you're not showing up and you're not doing other things. Speaking from um, personal experience, when I did uh, back at the start of February, finally arrange a meeting with my secondary supervisor, just my secondary, because I didn't feel able to say this to my primary supervisor. We met in a cafe and I just sort of sat down and I was kind of rambling a bit and talking about my research and I said, right, the reason I said I need to talk to you is because I have some mental health stuff and at some point it's going to be a problem and this is me telling you about it now. <laughs> and he said, uh, and I think it's really good advice for anyone who's worried about having this conversation with their supervisors, uh, he said, at this point it's more unusual for me to have a researcher working with me that doesn't deal with mental health issues in some kind of way you know to be the kind of person who's made it this far you have to be very single-minded often you have to be a perfectionist you you know there's a lot of traits associated with being a high-performing academic that come with anxiety and you'll often have your self-worth tied up in your productivity and tied up in other people thinking that your work is good which can make you very vulnerable to bouts of low mood if you're not told your work is good, or worse, if you're told your work is not good. Uh, the two bad outcomes. But at this point, while there is still absolutely a stigma about telling someone, on the whole, your supervisor, it won't be the first time they've heard this from someone and they will hopefully have had some training on supporting you and things like that. And if they haven't, if you know what you need for your support, that is the most useful thing you can give to a scared supervisor who doesn't know how to deal with uh, with mental health issues. So I just, I warned my supervisor basically that when it goes wrong for me, I'll drop off the map and you won't hear from me for a month. So if you don't hear from me for a month, just send me an email because my anxiety will trump my depression and I'll know that I have to respond to you. <laughs> <laughs> you have to get the, the different mental illnesses to kind of complement yeah. each other in a yeah. way and get you to do something yeah it's the anxiety that gets me out of bed and the depression yeah. that gets me to sleep at night <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> i actually um i approached my academic support first and we wrote um an email together to my supervisor i had emailed my supervisor and she'd been very very busy and she hadn't been able to reply to me and I'd intended to go along and say something in a meeting with her. But actually it turned out to be much easier to get someone else to help me compose an email where I was able to say something. So that might help as well. And I've just remembered about seeing a GP, there are some resources online, I think through SANE, where you can get a letter pre-written for your GP and you don't actually even have to say anything you just hand them a letter so that's a little bit less scary than uh, than actually having to say something to them out loud if you lose the power of speech I mean I've been incredibly lucky with the GP that I saw which I've later realized has not been experienced for most people because I got off antidepressants around a time when everything was changing I was on antidepressants for a year uh, and then I stopped taking them around Easter break last year and then literally everything changed over summer and I've moved from Durham where I've been for five years and I was horribly scared and I spent the first month in Manchester trying not to cry 
and a meeting was a good meeting if I got through the meeting without crying. I did manage to get through all of my supervisory meetings without crying, but that's because my supervisors are lovely. And by the end of it, I was like, okay, there is something wrong. And I walked into the GP's office and I burst into tears and the GP was like the most lovely and sympathetic person ever. And I've been so incredibly lucky because I kind of... And it happened very early on, which meant that they didn't affect my work as much as it could have if I kind of let it mm. drag on. And I mean, I had lots of support because my housemate is absolutely lovely, which was an absolute chance because we didn't know each other. None of us knew each other. And my partner has been really, really lovely with that. And my parents have also been nudging me to go and get support. And it's been very, very helpful this way. Yeah, I think one of the things that really flags up, and while not everyone will have a support network as sort of extensive as that, almost everyone will have someone that they can rely on and if you are in the position of thinking well you know I don't want to bother my friends with this or I don't know anyone who I could talk to about this I promise you that there if you just go for coffee with a friend and just say something along the lines of things have been a bit tough people will people come through for you there's not much more important in this experience than your networks I was thinking this just today actually because all four of us are in the same room and while the podcast has been you know sometimes a source of a bit of stress and getting things done on time and adding an extra deadline to my week one of the things that it has added to my week is at least an hour of social talking with humans and that's great for that uh, and it forces us to meet new people it's enabled me to sort of build new friendships and strengthen my friendships with uh, people that I already knew and you get a really different experience from having a friend on the podcast as well, sort of like the same person where you might, you know, chat with them over a cup of tea. When you bring them into the kind of formal environment, you get quite a deep conversation out of them. But it can be really good for sort of strengthening your networks. Almost everyone that I've met through the PhD has been a very kind, good-hearted person. So I think if there's one thing that I would say if you're facing something that feels like a crisis, find someone to talk to. If you're at Manchester, you can talk to me. I'm, I'm easy to find. I'm the one that's sitting in the Ellen Wilkinson building doing anything except for my work. <laughs> so I just wanted to add that if you're having mental health challenges, it's not, negati- it's not necessarily all negative. So, yes, you feel like rubbish. Um, you may not be happy. But there is something to be gained from continuing to do what you know you should be doing even when the future looks like looking at a brick wall and and you're thinking even if this changes it's meaningless for me it was realizing that you know i'm a christian god gives meaning to everything and i need to trust him it is very good for building your character i mean i wouldn't say like oh yes i would like more mental health struggles because then i will be growing in character but there are positive byproducts of it. I mean, if you weren't going through this, you probably wouldn't get to that point where you're like, I feel like rubbish, but I'm going to be the master of myself. I'm going to do my work and forget about how I'm feeling. Or, you know, 
when you come to a pinch, you're like, well, you know, I can handle this. Whereas if you hadn't been going through something, maybe you wouldn't. I mean, if you've gone through some really tough stuff, once you come out the other end of it, it's like the world is new and you're not scared by much. And that's quite empowering. Yeah, so. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's um, there's something about a lot of people would would say that, you know, that's not um, that when you're in it, it's impossible to think like, oh, well, this is, you know, this will be a character building <laughs> experience. But I will I will say that it has been true for me that every time I've come out the other side of a very bad period I've learned something new about myself at the end of it and the, the one of the things you learn is like well it was worth sticking around this time it wasn't it was it was worth holding on and it did get better and yeah I think we've we've probably all been there when you're at the very lowest low and someone says you won't feel this way forever and you're just kind of thinking what do you know <laughs> but they have always turned out to be right there is always some light even if there's a lot of tunnel you just have to stick with yourself even when you absolutely hate yourself because you're not getting up and you're not doing the thing there is you know there are moments where you don't feel like that and you have to hold on to those and those moments get bigger and bigger and bigger over time and then eventually you think I felt really low and I don't really understand why one of the things I've found that has helped me actually I'm going through a very, very difficult spell is remembering that there is a part of me that still really, really enjoys it. So you look for the really tiny bits of achievement through the day. And it's not, how much did I write? Oh, I, I worked for 16 hours today or how what, whatever ridiculous thing. It's like, I got this book out of the library and I really love it. Because the reason why you're doing a PhD is presumably because you actually love it even though a lot of the time you also kind of hate it (laughs) but you know you've got to kind of possibly take away the bits of it that you find exceptionally stressful and just go back to the bits that you really love one of the things that I've been doing is thinking about well when can I do things and what can I do in that time and having had a conversation with my supervisor about that I've been allowed to say well I've already proved that I can teach myself ancient languages without help and get firsts in exams doing that. Can I just do my advanced Greek by myself? I can't do the classes because of the times they are. I'm not good at working in that at that time. And we've agreed I'm, I, can, I can just do it in my own time because I know when I can work best. And it's always possible. Supervisors have to be reasonable with you. You know, if you're really struggling and you struggle because there are things you have to do at times of day when you can't do those things, then work out when you can do those things. Um, I think we all have kind of an expectation. We talked about imposter syndrome last time. We have an expectation we should be able to work nine to five and we take a bit of a lunch break and we can concentrate for that whole time. And that's rubbish (laughs) our brains can manage there's just been a study published says our brains can manage about 50 minutes at a time when our and after that we start to deflate and we need about a 20 minute break in order to come back and be able to be as focused as we were before it means that you spend less time with your head over the desk but you're actually spending more quality time at your desk you should step up 
get away from your desk, not go, oh, well, I'm really enjoying this. I'll just keep going until you feel tired. You stop while you still feel okay. And you do take that 20 minutes, you go for a walk and you do whatever else. And I'm like, oh my God, but it won't mean that I have these solid long stretches of time where I'm working. But actually that's much more healthy. I've seen blog posts from people who've taken sabbaticals and these are very advanced academics who are writing books and stuff. And they were saying, oh, you know, I thought I would be, you know, working from nine to five and I do X thousands of words a day. And it turns out that they can do about three or four Pomodoro sessions a day. <laughs> they have to finish about two o'clock and they're not going to do anything else productive because that's the way our brains are. Um, and it's really hard. You have to fight against your thoughts and your imposter syndrome and you need to compare all the time. And that's that can be really tough. But as you're saying, it's that's the learning experience. That's how you build character. That's how, as a future academic, when you've got PhD students bawling in your office going, <laughs> I can't do this. Please don't make me do any more aorists. I think they must have to gossip to each other to debrief, like, especially on the mid-year review, like, oh my goodness, such drama. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the secret conversations our supervisors have. Um, But, you know, they've been there. They've been there. I mean, certainly my supervisor's been very supportive. Um, All my academic advisors have been really, really supportive. If any supervisor does start to expect stuff of you that is above and beyond um which can happen and happened to me during my first phd then it's important that you use the support structure that we now have in place to kind of go and say to somebody else i'm being asked to do a year's work in six months that's not okay it's not okay if you're healthy it's really not okay if you're not well thank you for that i think there's some uh, really really Uh, valuable stuff that anyone can take away from as you say you know the goal is to never come to crisis but ultimately there's only so much that we can control even when you are doing all the right things something can happen that's outside of your control that just puts everything out of whack and sort of having some good advice to fall back from when things feel out of control is uh, a really good place to uh, to be in so uh, Althea, did you have a topic that you wanted to talk um, about? Yeah, people were really concerned about my mental health when I came here from the United States, and that kind of surprised me. So um, in the United States, if you work only 40 hours a week, you keep quiet about that because you're, you're pretty lazy. I mean, if you're 50 is normal, people brag about working 70. Um, and so that's the kind of culture I came from. And so I'm like, okay, I'm doing a PhD. 50 hours a week sounds like what I can do. Like, I don't want to do 60. That I've done that before. That's not the life I like. I've done 80 for three months. That was bad. I never want to do that again. But I come here, and I start being like, oh, I only worked, I only worked 9 to 5. Like, I don't know if I'm doing enough. And people would be like, you need to prioritize your mental health. And the first person that said that to me, I'm like, well, that's a really weird thing to say. But whatever. I, I'm, I'm just not sure. And my supervisors in the first meeting, they're like, well, you know, you have to look after yourself. You know, you have to take two weeks off at Christmas because you have to have a Christmas. I'm like, what on earth? I'm like, no. I mean, I was going to do that. But to have your your supervisor telling you to prioritize your well-being and take all the vacation that's allotted to you. Like, taking vacation in the United States means you're not a team player. And so I'm like, 
Well, I've fallen on clover, clearly, but this is going to blow up in my face in six months. Like, there's no way that you can do this not working so much. But as I continued to talk to other PhD students about this, they all, like, their face would fall, and they, they would look concerned, and they'd be like, well, you have to prioritize your mental health. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll try it for, a, I'll try this for two weeks and see what happens. And I, I need to, like, the next time I think of working overtime, I just need to not tell anybody because they'll get worried about me. <laughs> so, um, I, I mean, like, we don't really, in the United States, you don't talk about mental health, really. You have this work face. People are, I think, a lot afraid that if you talk about it, you'll be discriminated against. And so no matter what you're going through, you put on your work face and you get to work and nobody knows. So, but And it was really refreshing to come here and hear people just talking about, like, taking care of yourself. And I, I think I was actually preached at enough that I, I actually did try a different way of living. And I probably work less than 40 hours most weeks, but I'm getting it done, which is... Pretty shocking, but yeah, it didn't blow up in my face, but that was just kind of a funny culture shock. Like, I'm like, I'm telling people that I'm going to be working a reasonable amount, and they are worried about me. <laughs> I think the, um, the thing about the very high, when you work a week with a very high number of hours in it, is that the number of hours of good work you do is the same pretty much every week. If you do... Right. If you have a 20-hour work week one week and a 60-hour work week the next week, you probably did 15 hours of great work both weeks, and then you will have still got more done in the, by working more hours, but you'll end up with writing that you have to edit harder or arguments that you have to completely reformulate because you wrote them at 2 in the morning and <laughs> you're delirious. I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely like a limit that you can work and then you have to cycle back and recharge yourself but you don't nobody talks about that in the united states it's all but you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps you know he who works hard shall have the most success other people are working longer than you if you want to have success you'd better work longer than them and i mean there are studies that show that's really ineffective mm. but it it doesn't really come in like mm. it nowhere in either my undergrad or my master's was there anything like okay, this is a good way to study. Like In the business world, it's called presenteeism, that you have to be seen to be there and doing the work, and it doesn't matter, you know, if you're in the office 80 hours a week, it doesn't matter if your productive work is, is much less than that. It's about giving the impression that you're working harder than everyone else. And I think there is a PhD equivalent with those people who do talk about the number of hours they did or, you know who the people who tell you they're the most stressed out and they're working the most are d are often doing that i think to kind of um because they think that's what expected of them we were all told when we came here like this is going to be stressful you are going to be expected yeah. to work a lot and so i have had that feeling i guess it's linked to imposter syndrome of oh well i feel like it's going okay i feel like i'm getting by all right with the amount of work i'm doing but so-and-so is doing twice as much work as me and they seem incredibly stressed out, so <laughs> uh, should I be worried? I feel exactly the same. <laughs> Everyone's telling me it's going really well, you're doing very well on your PhD, and it's like, but I barely seem to be doing anything compared to all the people who are going, who will say, oh, 
I was thinking about taking a break this weekend <laughs> and not working and you're and I'm thinking I stop I clock off on at the end of Friday and I go home and I don't do anything all weekends you know I you know I read and play Dungeons and Dragons I, I go and do other things and it's almost as though the moment you step out of that, when you admit that actually you have free time, you're doing this like, you're going to fail, you know. <laughs> but I think a lot of these people say this stuff because they feel very anxious mm. and they can't put the work down. And it's not really, it seems like showing off and it probably sounds like showing off. But actually inside, they want your approval. They want you to say, yeah. wow, you're working really, really hard. But actually, working all the hours and working really, really hard doesn't necessarily get you to the PhD. It just gets you to burnout. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think there's insecurity at play. I think that all of us are sometimes comparing ourselves to others. But I think someone who's kind of being very loud about how much they work is perhaps someone who's a bit worried about how their work is going and who feels... Because ultimately... You can work on something for a really long time and not do a good job. Like, just because you've worked very hard on something doesn't mean that it's... There's a, there's a part of the whole process that you can't control. Like, call it creativity or inspiration or, or just a kind of divine spark. But a lot of the PhD is toil, but a certain amount of it is, is more than that. And if you don't have more than that, then you have to make it up with toil. Then there's the reverse bragging. Oh, I I drink, I get drunk every night. I never yeah. work. And look, I'm doing well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And those people are insecure as well, yeah. right? Like, yeah. And, I mean, I think, fundamentally, th there is this kind of feeling of comparing yourself to people who do 9-to-5 jobs. But nine to five jobs are structured very differently. You're usually in an office with other people, so you regularly, you know, take breaks to talk to people. Even if it's about work, yeah. you change the things that you do. You maybe answered emails, processed some paperwork, met a person, met another person, had a presentation, something like that. And very much, like a lot of the things that we do can be very much monotonous. And also, if you keep reading, you're doing no thinking. Yeah. Thinking goes so much better when you're talking about how your research is going, mm. when you're taking a coffee break and you're processing things that you've just read. Even when you're doing things which are completely unrelated to it. Like when you go home and you take a walk and you're still thinking about what yeah. you read and yeah. then you're actually making connections between it. And yeah. Yeah. I, I read somewhere, I, I don't know if it's true, but that you actually, your mind keeps making connections even while you're not thinking about it. Yeah. So that giving it time to stew may be helpful. I've read something very similar and that it supposedly explains why, I don't know if anyone else has this experience, this is definitely true of me, but you know that I have my best ideas in the shower. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> when I fall asleep, when I'm just, just before I fall asleep, I'll suddenly go, oh my God, oh, now I have yeah. to kind of write that down and I keep a notebook by my bed so I can write stuff down so that I don't forget it in the morning. <laughs> so that when I'm not actively thinking about something I've read or a source that yeah. I was looking at or something but instead you let it kind of marinate at the back of your brain <laughs> and let it sort of let your brain turn it over and then yeah I'll be often in the shower uh washing my hair and I'll uh, suddenly realize like 
oh my god, like this this person and this person were doing the same thing, but they were just doing it at different times or whatever, you know, some some connection. And so much of the process of history for me is finding a connection, finding two ideas that kind of go together or speak to each other. So yeah, like you can almost, because you live your PhD to some extent, you are probably doing more than 30 hours a week just in the background with your with your sort of uh, background processing you're still working on those ideas so if i work five hours a week does that mean i actually work 30 <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> you count any time at 3 a.m when you wake up and you lie there for an hour and you're just thinking of ideas that counts that's work <laughs> yeah. see i actually find that the best ideas that came into my phd so far came about when I was explaining my PhD to people who are non-specialists and when I was trying to explain something very simply and I was like oh my goodness those two things connect there is this kind of yeah thought when you were just making small talk and trying to explain what is it that you do with your life and then you know that kind of comes into it and you're like that worked I don't know about you, but I have found that the podcast has been brilliant for that because when someone is talking to you about their research, you'll have this thought of like, oh, that's just like mine. Uh, and then you're, you can sort of follow up with that conversation and, you know, they're maybe doing... Like a great example would be uh, the episode with Anne uh, and Althea. Like their, relation, their, their work has a relationship that, uh, that is kind of productive for both of them even though they're working on really different concepts and ideas but it's just that process of when you can make someone else understand you can make yourself understand <laughs> i had to do the same thing recently i was applying for a scholarship for a conference and they're like explain your doctoral research in 250 words i'm like great i can't do that and then i watched several three minute thesis things and i'm like oh that's what they want me to do so it, it was actually quite easy to figure it out and that gave me a bit more clarity myself after i'd finished that I really want to do three minutes. I really thing next year. So do I, but I have nothing to present yet. Oh yeah. no, it's it's only for second or third. Yes. Oh, okay, that's good. Yeah, I want yeah. to do it next year too. Yeah. yeah. Even th- if you don't win, it would just be a good experience. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's a a lot to be gained just from being able to explain your research that well. Yeah, and and even if you just pass the what is it regional university stage or something like that then you get additional training which i think is something that sounds absolutely amazing in terms of being able to explain very succinctly because that's how we are introducing ourselves for the rest of our lives by explaining what our research is about if we stay in academia and it sounds like something that will be very useful in explaining what is it we do with our lives well i mean every time you meet someone they're like oh phd what do you study? And you're like, oh, I don't want to say it. That's work. Shut up. Please don't ask me that. But like, they're interested and that's really not fair to them. That attitude is really not fair because they're actually taking an interest in you. And so it is literally how you introduce yourself. Mm. It's a, a good lesson from fiction um, to start off learning how to sum up your you start by summing up what you want to write or your book in one sentence and you're so involved in it that it's really hard to do at first because you're like well there's this character doing this and there's that character doing that and and then when you you boil it down to one sentence that's your elevator pitch and we don't actually teach that in academia but actually it's a really good idea because i mean i 
I don't know about you guys, but I keep going back to my funding proposal because mm-hmm. I keep rereading my funding proposal and go, oh, yeah, that's what I'm working on. I, every time I read I, that, I'm like, oh, my goodness. They, they had to have seen straight through that and realized <laughs> that I had no idea what I was talking about, but they still decided to take me on. I think my, my experience is very much the same. Not a feeling that they must have seen straight through it because I think my work is so specific that no one could know what was bullshit necessarily. Oh, no, mine wasn't, mine wasn't like, I didn't make mine up, but like, as soon as I came here, he's like, okay, so now take six weeks and, and read because like, he could tell that had been done very quickly. Yeah. Hmm. With mine, I'd, I'll go back and look at it and be like, I can't believe I thought I was going to do this. Like, it's already evolved in such a direction. Like, I did. I, I was really sure that it was going to have something to do with the international feminist movement, and I am 90% sure that it's going to have nothing to do with that. So I think this is a good place to conclude part two of our well-being special. I really hope that anyone listening at least got some sort of useful advice out of it, or if not advice, then hopefully a sense that whatever you're feeling about your PhD... You are not on your own and that no matter how the, the anxiety or the stress gets to you, I think the one thing that we can take away from all of our uh, sort of different problems is that the answer to it is very often to talk to someone, either formally if you're sort of facing a mental health crisis, informally if you need to make sure that you're building enough breaks into your day and also just to kind of... Um, keep some perspective in your life talk to different people not only people who are working 60 hours a week and stressing themselves actually out actually try not to talk to those people yeah. because they can drag you down with them <laughs> and and remember and unless you're actually in the medical department um you're not actually going to be life-saving or anything like that as my supervisor said to me this afternoon you're not a brain surgeon (laughs) nobody is going to die if you take two weeks off and you don't do perfectly in greek exams yeah that that perfectionist instinct is what got us here to some extent but you have to recognize when it's a friend and when it's a foe knowing i think one thing that has been really helpful to me to learn in the last few years is just Good enough is good enough. You don't have to be amazing. And amazing can happen in your fourth or fifth draft, but when it's time to turn something in, turn it in good enough and make it better next time. Thank you very much for uh, joining us for our wellbeing episodes. Um, and as always, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here. <laughs> what happens on the podcast? Wait, wait, guys. We were just talking about telling our supervisor. That was the whole point <laughs> of the episode. Okay. Do tell your supervisor what you heard here. What happens in your well-being is also happening on the podcast. (laughs) Not Safe for Publication is a new podcast about the lighter side of humanities research at the University of Manchester. If you're a humanities researcher who has something funny to share, please be in touch with us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NSFP Podcast. Have an adequately happy existence. <laughs>